Now we're turning to the book of Jonah again tonight. And the title for tonight is Then Jonah Prayed. Last week we were thinking about the very unique prayer room that God brought him to. A very special place. It's a place I hope never to be found in. This is a nice prayer room, but I don't want to go to where Jonah had to go to to have a time of prayer. Well, that's the title tonight, Then Jonah Prayed. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We'll read just that first verse again and uh, then the last verse. Verse 1 of Jonah 2. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And then in response to that, and the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. May God bless his word. It's interesting that God had to speak twice to the human, had to speak twice to Jonah, but he just had to speak once to the fish. That's an amazing thing as well. That's a little thought that came to mind there. Now, Jonah, the book of Jonah, as you know, is one of the 12 books in the Bible, the Old Testament, that uh, are known as the minor prophets. And in the Hebrew Bible, they're known as the 12. And by the way, Jonah is number five on the list. And I've said it many times before, five in the Bible, there's a number of grace. And there's grace in this book because Christ is in this book. So never lose sight of that fact that Christ is here. And where you find Christ, you find grace. And Jonah experienced grace. And the people of Nineveh also experienced grace. So he's one of the 12 minor prophets. And then I thought about the New Testament. And we read there of another 12, 12 men, 12 disciples. The disciple is a learner, follower, who became apostles. Apostle means sent. They became sent ones. So these followers became sent ones. And one of the twelve was a man called Peter. You've met Peter many a time in your Bible studies. Peter. He was the son of a man called Jonah. I find that interesting. Not the same Jonah that we're talking about here. Uh, there are a few centuries between these two different characters. But he was the son of a man called Jonah. John chapter 1, uh, verse 42 Matthew 16, verse uh, 17 as well. And the reason I'm telling you this is very simple. Both of these men are associated with Joppa in the Bible. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 3, uh, we are told how Jonah abandoned the challenge to go to the Gentiles with God's message. That's what this book is about. And then when you come to the New Testament, to the book of Acts chapter 10, you read the story of Peter and verse 5. And there we read how he accepted the challenge to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. Now he was called to go to the house of Cornelius, who was a centurion, who was a Gentile, and he readily obeyed. But when you think of our character before us tonight, 
he abandoned the challenge when it came to Joppa and he set foot in the boat or the vessel and began to sail away from the promised land, turning his back on God, going in the opposite direction. Now, a simple conclusion from it all is this. Had Jonah done what Peter did at Joppa, things would have turned out different. What did Peter do that Jonah didn't do initially? Well, Peter was found there on the rooftop looking out over the Mediterranean Sea where Jonah one day previously was cast overboard. Remember that? He was up there praying, seeking the face of God. Now, we're told then, then Jonah prayed. Now, I noticed that he was slow in praying. And sometimes when we meet the crisis, we're slow in praying. That's the last thing we do rather than the first thing we do. Isn't that right? That's the way you work. That's the way I work. We always put something else before it, and we leave prayer to the last resort. It ought to be the first thing, of course. And as we mature and develop in the things of God, we discover that more and more. Now, there's no evidence that uh, he prayed in the ship. Once he got onto the ship, paid the fare, he went down into the sides of the vessel. He didn't want to see anybody. When you're out of touch with God, you don't want to see anybody else. You want to retreat. You want to be in your own company. Isn't that the way it works when we get out of touch with God? We can't bear to meet another believer in case they may ask us for the prayer meeting tonight. Will you be in church on Sunday morning? Now, when we get out of touch with God, the believer is the last person we want to see. So we, we can see this man, he gets down on the sides of the vessel. He doesn't want to see anybody and he's certainly not praying. There's no evidence that he prayed in the storm. Well, how do we know that? Well, when the captain came in the midst of the storm, he was asleep. And he said, awake, thou that sleepest. Everybody else is praying. Now he's talking about the pagans and that really wasn't true prayer, but they were doing the best they could. But, but he wasn't praying, he was fast asleep. And there's no evidence that he prayed in the sea. Now, I know that the uh, great fish picked him up in the sea, but it was in the sea before he was in the belly of the fish, and there's no evidence that he prayed in the sea. But then we do know that in the belly of the fish, in that dark environment, no windows to let light in, no doors to let him out, in the darkness of that slimy belly of the fish. He prayed. He was slow to pray. But then I also thought, these are just a few things I, I thought about by way of preparation. He was stirred to pray. Now, what he experienced awakened the need in his heart because when he discovered himself in the belly of the fish, there was no way out, and he thought to himself, what's going to happen to me now? There was nothing else he could do but pray. And sometimes when there's nothing else that we can do, all we can do is pray. And sometimes that's the best prayers that we offer to God. This was a good prayer. We don't know about his prayer life, but certainly when you think of this book with four short chapters, and yet one chapter is dedicated with the exception of verse 10, one chapter is devoted to prayer. That shows the importance of prayer 
And this prayer was offered in the belly of that great fish. And by the way, he never asks for anything. You'd have thought he'd been asking for something. Get me out of this place. Didn't. His heart was filled with thanksgiving ultimately. And he never asks for anything. So I thought that was interesting. Four short chapters. And so it's a quarter then of the chapters is given over to prayer. Emphasizing the importance of prayer. So when he could do nothing else, he prayed. And then he was strengthened for prayer. And God had to give him grace and strength to pray. And that's the only way we can maintain prayer. By God's mercy and God's grace. Then Jonah prayed. Now last time uh, we thought about the cause of his prayer. Uh, we, we, we use that word affliction. Uh, James asked the question, is any among you afflicted? That's the question. The answer, let him pray. And we find Jonah doing that long before James took up the pen to write that. So we see this being put into practice. And we can put it into practice. We need to pray. We want to think now for a moment about the, the character or the content of Jonah's prayer. And now, when you look at this, and you can study it for yourself, I'm not going to get all the, into all the details tonight, but you look at it for yourself. I'm the teacher, but you're the pupil, and you've got homework to do. I'm not going to do all the work for you. You need to read it for yourself. And you can take maybe my counsel as, as words of advice to open things up. But then you've got a responsibility as a pupil to study it for yourself. Now, Jonah had no problem identifying the Lord as the prime mover in his distress. Look at what he says there in verse 3. For thou hadst cast me into the deep. It was the Lord. It wasn't the mariners. Yes, literally, it was the mariners who took him up. But the Lord was behind the whole thing. The mariners were the hands of God casting his wayward servant over into the Mediterranean Sea. And he talks there about thy billows and thy waves. These were God's waves. These were God's breakers that were threatening to swallow him. So he had no problem identifying the Lord as the prime mover of his distress. Then he said in verse 4, Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Now, he was not really abandoned by God, but he felt that he was. And sometimes that's the way we feel, and sometimes that's the way we get. We feel as if we are abandoned by God. That's the lie the devil wants us to believe. He only thought he was abandoned by God. Because the promise of God is, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. He was not really abandoned by God. And the point I want to emphasize is this. When aroused from our spiritual lethargy, we become conscious of the weight of God's chastening on us. Now, what we have here is the voice of an awakened backslider in this particular portion of God's word. He acknowledged that he deserved discipline. And there's a threefold movement in the chapter, and I'm not going to go into any great detail, but I'm just mentioning this to you. And each section begins with a rehearsal of his impossible situation and ends with an expression of his faith. Now, I'll just give you the different sections, the threefold section, verses two through four. Let me give an example. 
At the verse of, uh, beginning of verse 2, I cried by reason of mine affliction. Okay, he's expressing there uh, the, the impossible situation that he faced. And then as he comes to the end, in verse 4, I will look toward thy holy temple. Here's an expression of faith. And the same thing is found there in verses 5 and 6. The waters compass me about even to the soul. And then at the end of verse 6, Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. The same thing is found in verses 7 through 9. So really, the chastening work of God is working in this man's life. He's acknowledging the impossible situation that he's in. But yet there's an expression of faith. God is stirring his heart. God is moving his heart. God is working through the discipline that has been applied to get him to be where he needs to be, where he should be. So the discipline was working. How do I know that? He concludes here by saying, I will look again toward thy holy temple. This is the key to understand Jonah's heart at this time. He's probably thinking about the dedication of Solomon's temple about 150 years before in 1 Kings chapter 8. And the temple signifies redemption. It was the place where the sacrifice was made. And Christ, in John chapter 2, he identifies himself as a temple. He says, destroy this temple. Not the one in Jerusalem. Destroy this temple. Now, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed years later. But he's talking about this temple. Destroy this temple. And I will raise it up in three days. So that's what he was talking about. He's the temple. So looking to Christ... Signified, looking to the temple signified for Jonah what looking to Christ means for us. Looking to the temple, he was looking for mercy through the blood of the cross, through the reconciling power of Christ, our great Redeemer. And when we get down and discouraged and depressed, we need to look again to Christ. I will remember the Lord. I will look again to the temple. And here, when we think about this prayer, Prayer was based on the sacrifice because he's looking to the temple the way Daniel did. He's looking to the temple, to the place of sacrifice. So he's drawing nigh to God. Now he's drawing nigh to God through Christ the way we draw nigh to God tonight in this season of prayer. Our prayers are worthless without him. It's Christ that makes them worth, worthy and acceptable. We're not praying on our own strength and our own merits. We're praying upon the ground of redemption through the redemptive work of Christ. We're drawing near as beggars to a thrice holy God in his name with a burdened heart seeking his face and we find acceptance through his work and through his blood that was shed. You think about the daily burning of the incense on the, the golden altar and the holy place in the tabernacle, that prefigures the intercessory work of Christ. The constantly rising cloud of incense was not only a symbol of the prayers of Israel, but also a type of the high priestly work of Jesus Christ. So there, look at it. The poles were taken from off the altar on the outside, the brazen altar, where the sacrifice was made. There's the sacrifice been made. These burning coals were taken from there and put upon the golden altar of incense. And so that when the incense was applied, there was the smoke arising to the nostrils of God, God just beyond the veil in the mercy seat. What a wonderful 
picture and type that our prayers are based upon the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And they send up to the nostrils of God through that work. And when you think of the coals, you think of passion, the passion that we need in prayer. Because it was only as the incense was put onto the burning coals that the smoke began to rise. Oh, how we need passion in prayer as we draw near to the throne of heavenly grace. So we have this wonderful picture. I will look again to the temple. I will look again to Christ. I'm down. I'm in the belly of the great fish. I'm down. I've lost my way. I've grown cold. I'm coming again to the cross, coming to God through Jesus Christ, the Son. So I could go on elaborating that, but there's food for thought for you. I, I remembered the Lord, he says, and when you look at this prayer carefully, his, his prayer is full of the word of God. He was familiar with the scriptures. And if you look at carefully, and if you have a margin down your Bible, and you have all these little numbers and letters, you follow those things through and see where they lead you to. Uh, that's a good way to study the Bible, to get to know the Bible. Look at these numbers and these little letters and so on, and go to the portions that they recommend you to go to. And I think if you tally them all up, you can do it for yourself. I, I think that he quotes from 11 different Psalms in this prayer. Wow, how he knew the word of God. Psalm 42, 36, 31, 40, 69, 142, 18, 144, 50, 107. What are the Psalms about? When you're down in the dumps, first thing in the morning, where do you think about going to? Oh, you'll say, I'll read a Psalm. If you can't maybe go on to read something from a book of Revelation, it's too heavy there, or Ezekiel, or some of the, the chapters full of numbers and names, you'll go to the Psalms. You want a wee word, a wee word to encourage you. Where do you go? You go to the Psalms. And so here's a man, and if ever he needed a word of encouragement, it was him down there in the belly of the fish, that dark, slimy place. And there... As he lies there, oh, there's the word of God in his mind. And he's praying the word. He's bringing God's word back to God. That's a good way to get your prayers answered. The Lord, when he came to die, so Jesus is like Jonah. Because when he came to die on the cross, he quotes the Psalms. Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 31, verse 5 or thereabouts. And then in verse 8, look at what it says. Jonah speaks of lying vanities. Now, what's this all about in the middle of this prayer? What's, what's the language here? Well, over in the margin of my Bible, Jonah speaks of lying vanities or vain idols. And the Hebrew word that is used there uh, gives us underlying uh, meaning behind the word is vapor. I wait to hear this now, vapor. Now, since idols are spiritually insubstantial, when the wheel breaks the surface, it does not eject water. It does not eject spouts of water. It's actually vapor. I didn't realize that until I began to study this. So you can see this wheel. Now, the Bible talks about the great fish, the sea monster. Over in the New Testament, the word whale is mentioned, but I think it's the great fish. But we're talking here about a wheel. When the wheel breaks the surface, it does not eject spouts of water. It's vapor. And the point is this. In the middle of this portion, dealing with prayer, 
God requires substance in our prayers. They must not, in any sense, be vaporous, but must have actual content and reality. So here is this man. He's not in this place. He's confined and he's praying and he's basing his prayer upon the Holy Scriptures. He's looking to the Lord again. He's looking to the sacrifice. He's drawing nigh through the work of the sacrifice. Now, is that going to be vaporous? Is there not substance there? I think there is. And I think that's a teaching that we need to get into our hearts. And then he says in verse 9, I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving, verse 9. So here he's giving thanks unto the Lord. But the amazing thing about it, now listen to it. The interesting thing is this. Nothing has changed as far as Jonah's concerned. He's prayed. And he, he breaks forth into thanksgiving, but nothing has changed. He's still down in the belly of the fish. Still down in the submarine. <clears throat> nothing has changed. But here's a note of victory. Still in the damp, dark belly of the wheel. In human terms, the situation is still impossible as before. And yet he's thankful to God. God has a purpose for him. And then that brings me to the conclusion from Jonah's prayer. Jonah tells us twice that God answered prayer. If you look there at verse 2. And said, I cried by reason of mine affliction to the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried, and thou heardest my voice. Jonah's cry for help was heard. My prayer came in unto thee, says in verse 7, or went up into thy holy temple. In other words, it came before God. It, it found acceptance there before God. And prayer is one of the constant miracles of the Christian life. And he answered me. Here we have the good theology of prayer. The God who had sent him, remember that word I mentioned a long time ago, that, that word sent in chapter 1, that, that means hurled. And, and we use the illustration of, of uh, uh, Saul uh, throwing out the, the javelin to pin David to the wall. That's that particular word. And it's, it's used here again in verse 3, cast. It's the same word, sent, cast, hurled. A, a physical storm was sent by God to... Uh, prevent Jonah to stop him to hit the target with some measure of precision. And one of the words to describe the activity of God towards the believer in the Greek is the, the, the Greek equivalent to this particular Hebrew word sent or hurled. It's found in Ephesians 1 verse 19 where Paul talks about the exceeding greatness of his power to usward. That word exceeding is a word the equivalent to it and it means surpassing to throw beyond the usual mark and it carries the idea of over and beyond what is the overthrow of his power that's what I say so just as God sent out the storm it pinpointed Jonah there it hit the target it hit the mark so 
we can have this thought before us as we come to pray. We have the thought of this exceeding great power, the power of God, the power and the, the, the strength of God, the overthrow of his power. Just as he apprehended Jonah, so he can answer prayer in a powerful fashion. Chapter 2 begins with Jonah praying. At the ends with God speaking. You can see that. These are the verses I read. What's the, the, the conclusion? Prayer brings a response from heaven. Very simple, isn't it? A child in a Sunday school, in the Sunday school, Sunday school could tell you that. Do you, do you see it? It's so simple. Prayer brings a response from heaven. It begins with Jonah and the fish's belly and ends with him and dry land. What does that mean? That God brought him through and God brought him out of the storm. I was reading when I prepared this message, Isaiah 50 and verse 10. Maybe you know it. This is what Isaiah says. Listen to it. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of a servant that walketh in darkness? And hath no light. That's strange, is it not? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. So the picture is of one walking in darkness. That person is to stay or rely upon his God. So here we find Jonah. He's in the darkness now. Uh, here's the picture in Isaiah of a man on a journey as he walks. Light is suddenly withdrawn and darkness rules rushes in. And the Hebrew indicates that he walks in deep darkness even without a glimmer of light to guide him. You think about the apostle in Acts 27 and that uh, voyage. Uh, no light was seen in a, a number of days. All was dark, depressing. Someone has described this experience as the dark night of the soul. When no light is thrown on the way, on your suffering, when the usual means of grace, prayer and worship and singing and reading have no effect on our drooping spirits. The word stay means to lean. It means to lean for support. Psalm 23, I'm linking it up here. Psalm 23 is interesting. The root of the word is translated staff. Thy staff comfort. It comforts me. Support me is the meaning of the word comfort. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. So when God withdraws the light, as in the case of Jonah, he's trying to teach us that there's something better than light. It's faith. And that's where Jonah is brought to in the belly of the fish. He's brought to a place of faith again. I remember the Lord. I'm looking again to thy holy temple. I'm looking upon the sacrifice. I'm approaching thee as a backslider through the work of the sacrifice. I'm resting in thee. I need support. I need help. I need God to remember me for good. Revelation 8 Verse 1, when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Silence can be a terrifying thing. 
In the suffering, Job asked question after question, but heaven was silent. When the book closes, Job still doesn't know why. Does not know why he suffered. But God eventually answers. After 37 chapters of silence, God is going to speak. And then out of the whirlwind, God speaks in chapter 38, verses 2 and 3. Then you can read it for yourself in verses 4 and 5. He gives his explanation. But God isn't answering questions. He's asking them. And he tells Job to view nature, to behold the universe. He tells him that he is the creator of all things and he can do as he so desires and he owes no explanations. That's it. So after all those chapters of questioning, God just comes and says, listen, I'm God. I can do as I so desire for my glory and for your good. And the way God treated Jonah in his book was for his own good and for God's glory. And Jonah prayed. Has the light gone out? There's something more important than light, it's faith. And the Lord wants us to rest in him. Remember Jacob as he came to die, he came to die leaning on the staff. He was worshiping, leaning on the staff. As he came to worship, he leaned upon the support. And we need to lean upon our support. As we draw near to God, our support is Christ. May God bless his word tonight to all of our hearts. We'll bow for prayer. Keep before you the Bible week, please. And uh, use this as a means of prayer in your own home. And continue also to remember the need for a pastor for the congregation. Pray for Mrs. Moore, family, elders. Hear prayers at this time. Let's get down to seek the Lord together. I'd like to ask uh, Johnny O'Neill to lead us in prayer, please.